1: Yeah, it has been a rough week for our city. And I know we are all still reeling from the news about the shooting at UNLV. And our thoughts, of course, are with everyone who's affected. So today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm going to sit down with executive producer Sonia Cho Swanson and Nevada Current editor April Corbin Gurnis, And we're going to talk about the updates, latest ones on the UNLV shooting the shooting at the homeless encampment that took place just days before that, and the indictment of six pro-Trump fake electors. It's Friday, December 8th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Sonia and April, welcome to CityCast Las Vegas Friday News Roundup.
2: Thanks for having me back. Thanks, David.
1: Well, yeah, of course, we're we're going to touch on the shooting news at the very top of this episode. We're recording this on Thursday, the 7th of December at noon. What we know so far is um, a little bit more than what we knew last night when we went to sleep. The identity of the shooter uh, has been confirmed. It was a professor uh, who was looking for a job at UNLV and apparently was rejected for that job. We are being told that no students were injured. It was faculty and or staff. The police are certainly uh, doing searches. Uh, The residence of the individual who is being pegged as being responsible for the the shooting, and that was a, a Henderson apartment. Sonia, what else do we know?
0: Right. So the Clark County Coroner's Office just identified two of those uh, victims. The first is Professor Chajan Jerry Chang, age 64, of Henderson, and Assistant Professor Patricia Navarro-Velez, age 39, of Las Vegas. The third uh, deceased victim has not been named yet because the coroner's office is still working to identify their next of kin. We aren't going to be talking about the name of the shooter uh, on our show just yet, but, um, uh, you know, the AP has released that name. And I actually got a chance to go look over at his website. What's interesting is that he uh, appears to be a, a professor of marketing, but also has a page on his website in which he delves into conspiracy theories and mysteries, claims to have solved the last unsolvable part of the Zodiac Killers letter, for example. Oh, great. Yeah, it, it, and all written up in academic-style paper with footnotes and, and on. So, um, you know, we could speculate all day about the mindset of this person, but clearly this is a person who uh, likes to ruminate on some of the the puzzles of, I guess, modern society.
1: Wow. April, um, you know, you're over at The Nevada Current. Certainly, as journalists, this is something that you're going to follow up on. What what are the next steps for reporting that you and your team would be looking at in, in a situation like this?
2: Obviously, as of the time that we're filming this, uh, we don't know about the motive. Obviously, a lot of there will be a lot of focus on um, the weapon and whether or not it was obtained legally and when it was obtained legally. Those are obviously issues that the legislature and gun activists and all sorts of people uh, care a lot about. Uh, so there'll probably be a lot of emphasis on that. Obviously, uh, the victims uh, sort of honoring them and their lives will obviously be a, um, a focus for a lot of people also, but, uh, but it remains to be seen. It's really early in terms of um, figuring out where to go with this story. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think this is already kicking off the inevitable debate around gun control, right? One sort of troubling thread that I saw on some message boards was that, oh, UNLV was a gun-free zone and look what good that did. Um, so I think... Um, We'll, uh, we'll start to see how how this particular narrative, interestingly, also with the, the supposed use of a handgun versus an automatic weapon, it'll be interesting to see how that spins out in the narrative to come. You know,
1: April, I know there were some gun control measures that were introduced by the last legislative session that uh, were ultimately vetoed. Uh, by Governor Lombardo. I don't know yet if any of those would have applied in this particular situation, but as far as following up with stories that are going to come out of uh, publications like yours, do you you go and, and survey those legislators? Do you talk about specific legislation, either in the past or in the future, that might have some renewed relevance because of this big shooting at UNLV?
2: Absolutely. We've already started to see some people try to raise those issues. I've seen a lot of people on social media resharing stories from May when uh, Joe Lombardo vetoed the three gun bills. Obviously, at this point, we don't know if any of those would have applied, which you just said, but um, no doubt they will be, uh, people will make this an issue uh, and um, explore that concept. And, and, and lawmakers are already speaking out about it. So we'll definitely be following that.
1: Have any of them caught your attention yet, April? That you know would be noteworthy, of the legislators who have commented.
2: You know, not surprisingly, uh, Sandra Hardy has uh, spoken out about it. She's a you know very vehement gun advocate or <laughs> gun control advocate uh, who survived uh, one October and has led most of that legislation. Uh, so I, I imagine that she will continue to be out front on this issue. We're
1: gonna move on to another subject now, and uh, unbelievably, this wasn't the only. Mass shooting to happen in Las Vegas this week. Sonia, can you summarize the the other one that maybe is being a little overshadowed right now?
0: Yeah. So uh, just to take a quick step back, there are a lot of different definitions about what counts as a mass shooting. But um, every town a noted nonprofit leading work in this area says that their definition is anytime. Four or more people are shot and wounded or shot and killed, not including the shooter themselves. Uh, That counts as a mass shooting and that qualifies, obviously, for both this case at UNLV and on the Friday before, on December 1st, another shooting that took place at a homeless encampment out near Charleston and Sand Hill Road. So what we know is that an individual came up to an encampment, shot five men there killing one and then ran to a waiting SUV nearby, uh, jumped in the passenger seat and then sped off.
1: Oh, yeah! wow. I I didn't catch that that it was jumped into the passenger seat. So there was another person. Yeah,
0: likely another person involved. I think that also kind of speaks to a level of like planning or premeditation, which I think is also interesting there. Since then, uh, the Review Journal has reported that police actually came by and cleared the surrounding encampments, um, although it seems most of the residents have just moved nearby. I also just really wanted to shout out um, at the RJ the work of Ricardo Torres-Cortez, Brett Clarkson, and Jeff Burbank for their like thoughtful reporting on this issue. I think it's often easy to overlook um, issues of violence in homeless communities, um, but they really spent some time and, and spoke to individuals who live in the encampment, really helped humanize the story. And so what we know, thanks to their reporting, is that the man who died, his name was Timothy Bratton. He was 57. He had friends named Robert and Audrey who said that he was kind and never hurt anyone and always helped others.
1: Yeah, wow. You know, before we talk about the the shooting itself, the the clearing of the encampment uh, is always a controversial, uh, whether there's been a shooting there or not, just sort of bulldozing or or wiping out the area where people are living to survive. Uh, Of course, it's problematic just sort of that, that, that sort of desert squatting that that happens with these encampments. So, you know, in response to the shooting, Mayor Goodman, because uh, this happened in the city, cited the resources at the, the courtyard, which in itself is controversial. And we know that many unhoused folks don't want to access that courtyard for a number of reasons.
0: Right, right. Like, for example, separation from pets and family. Maybe they're concerned about safety within, et cetera, for sure.
1: Or, or or maybe they just don't want to jump through some of the, the hoops and, you know, relative to what they're doing right now. I, I just wonder, though, all that aside, what can be done to protect our community of people who are unhoused? And also, do we have a duty to do so even after they reject what's being offered to them, like the courtyard or other resources? I mean, April, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that any... <laughs> Any suggestion, however subtle, that these people, these homeless people, should have been at the courtyard and maybe they would have been safe there is so short-sighted um, because there's no guarantee that they would have been safe there. I mean, it sounds like, based off what we know, what the people in like the RJ's reporting has said, that uh, somebody went and targeted homeless people. So they could have gone to the courtyard and done this. And yeah, there there's security at the, the courtyard and maybe that's a deterrent, but there's no guarantee that there's safety when somebody with uh, a gun and a desire to kill homeless people, they're going to find them. They're going to find them wherever. Uh, so, so trying to push any narrative of, of you know, these people should have been there and not at this homeless encampment is is far-fetched. Like, I think any people should be safe everywhere, um, regardless of, you know, whatever is going on in their lives. Uh, and I, I hope that that's the narrative that emerges.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, public safety is extended to all residents of our city, regardless of where they live, for sure. I also wanted to mention this kind of comes on the heels of another string of shootings of of unhoused folks in L.A. the week before. Law enforcement has said that they're not connected. I think they had somebody in custody in L.A., but I believe this person actually ended up allegedly shooting three homeless people in L.A. And what's interesting is I, I remember talking about this with Scott, our newsletter editor, a few days ago. Uh, and he he mentioned that he'd gotten like an uptick in messages from readers who were kind of frustrated with homeless encampments encroaching on more suburban parts of the city. Mm. And that sometimes it could really leak into vitriol or, or anger against homeless people in areas where they weren't expecting to see them. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, David, but like I feel like I have seen more unhoused folks in areas like parts of Summerlin or Centennial Hills where, where my parents live, you know, people panhandling outside of grocery stores in, you know, my Trader Joe's. Like it's, it does feel like the last, you know, four or five years, things have shifted in the suburb kind of neighborhoods of Las Vegas.
1: Yeah. The tenuous status of of folks is really being felt within the community and no corner of the community is particularly safe outside of these gated communities, you know, and even then so, it's nearby. Look, it's not linear, it's not either-or. I don't think that we can say, wow, if we just had them all rounded up at the courtyard, then we can do all the good, especially since it's not practical and it's not desired by so many people. So, yeah, I, I think ultimately, there are going to be people out there who are targeting people they don't like the looks of. And people who are homeless are particularly vulnerable. And I do think we do have a duty. I mean, I asked the question, I did have a thought in my mind, mm-hmm. um, that there is a duty to to protect them better, but not forget about, you know, holistically all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, this is this is a really troubling development. April, have you seen maybe an uptick of encampments in places where they weren't before? And what do you think, if yes, the implication is?
2: Yeah, I mean, speaking anecdotally as a resident of... Clark County. I definitely sort of in the suburbs. I I definitely feel like in in the span of where I've lived in the last three years, I've seen more homeless people. Not so much in an encampment, but definitely just one off, like wandering around and walking to their encampments, which are are, are sort of hidden behind things. I definitely think there there's an uptick, and it's not surprising given the sort of economic reality of of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily afraid of it, but I certainly believe that some of my neighbors might be. And I think you guys are dead on in terms of, of that. But I've never had a bad interaction with any of, of them uh, that have wandered around in our neighborhood. It's, you know, uh, most homeless people are fine and it's not it's right. uh, shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't be afraid of them, I think.
1: Are you surprised, guys, that, you know, the conversation quickly turns from electeds like Mayor Goodman to they just need to take advantage of the resources versus... A renewed effort to prevent homelessness in the first place, to talk about getting rid of things like summary eviction and other very clear causes of people being in these more tenuous positions leading to homelessness.
2: Absolutely. It's a lot easier to focus on somehow blaming the victim here rather than addressing our systemic widespread issues.
1: Well, um, you know, hearts go out to the victims of of any shooting by anyone for any reason, obviously, and I'm I'm hoping that this other mass shooting isn't so totally obscured because one happened at a university and one happened at a homeless encampment. All right, let's move on to the last topic, and uh, this was, I think, slated to be big news, uh, and <laughs> and and certainly the other stuff has really put it to the back, but still important, and we're talking about the very last minute. Pushed by the attorney general to indict the individuals who presented themselves as the true electors of the 2020 election when they were in fact not. (laughs) April, you're writing about this. What was the new development? against the fake electors.
2: So uh, <laughs> Attorney General Aaron Ford announced that the six fake electors, that's the six Republicans who uh, convened outside of the legislative building in Carson City in early December 2020 to sign you know, fake elector uh, certifying the election for Donald Trump, who very clearly lost Nevada during that election. He announced that they had been indicted uh, for two uh, felonies. Which is offering a false instrument for filing and uttering a forged instrument, uh, <laughs> which I think is legally is for just creating uh, these these fake documents and submitting them to they submit it to the National Archives and, uh, you know, the Senate. Uh, and obviously, it was a part of a coordinated effort with the Trump campaign. We saw this in other states. This was part of the US Select Committee's uh, investigation into January 6th. Um, Georgia is pursuing charges on these. This is something that's happening all across the country. Uh, And for a while, uh, we were not sure whether or not Ford would go after our fake electors, uh, but uh, this week he decided to.
1: In fact, he at one point said there was no law that covers this. Yes. Or, or there was no law that readily covered this, but he was still investigating, and apparently that investigating took some time.
2: Yes, there. Uh, you know, th- th- that's a point of contention for for myself, and I think a few other journalists, in that uh, Ford more recently has. After rumors or sort of it, after reports came that Ford was uh, investigating these things and charges might be forthcoming, uh, Ford made some comments like, I never said that we weren't going to charge them. But like the comments that he had made were very clearly suggesting that. And he never corrected anybody to say that. And it was a, it was just this very weird turnabout. Like, I think that the narrative largely had been that Nevada wasn't going to pursue it. And then since this, this came as kind of a shock of like, oh, I guess we are.
1: And as I mentioned right at the deadline, because there is a statute of limitations and they kind of snuck under the wire.
0: There is, yes. The deadline would have been December 14th, right?
2: So that's like days away. That's my understanding.
0: Okay, so I I have a question about this, though, because something I've seen John Ralston over at the Indy tweet about is that these same fake electors are the ones who are trying to run a heavily pro-Trump caucus in the state right now. So I guess my question is, would this throw a wrench into those caucus plans?
2: I don't think so. I think I don't know that there's any law or, you know, rules saying that indicted people can't run the caucus. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a a weird answer, but uh, it's
1: a very modern answer, isn't it?
2: But it's true. Like, uh, we have known about this. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we have known about their involvement. It came out during, uh, you know, public records as part of the investigations that the U.S. Uh, select Committee did, that we know that they were involved. We know they haven't backed down. They have never sort of said sorry or, or, or walked back from those actions. And they're still running the party. So if the, if the party's cool with indicted people running it, then... No problem.
1: I think Ralston's really focusing on how salacious it is that, you know, people who were definitely trying to ultimately rig the election so that Nevada said Trump and not Biden are now the ones that are in charge of the caucus, which is going to tell us who the candidate who gets all the actual Republican electors will be. And they all seem to be pretty pro-Trump still. So, yeah, how do you? I don't know how you accord all that or how there's no shame anymore.
2: There isn't. I mean it's it's crazy to think that you know our, our Secretary of State's office has had meetings of you know in preparation for Nevada's first uh, presidential primary which is mandated by the state and the person who gave the presentation for the Nevada State Republican Party was Jim DeGrafenrade one of the fake electors who was just indicted who was subpoenaed by Georgia to go speak to testify in the case against Trump lawyers like these yeah. are the people that Republicans are allowing to run their party. And I think Ralston is right to sort of uh, point it out and 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 question, like, why why is this acceptable?
1: Throw a little Game of Thrones shame, shame their way. And then he also <laughs> pointed out that one of the indicted, uh, Jesse Law, uh, also hours before the indictment was announced, announced that he was running for the assembly. So yeah, that's right, all, right, it's all right. a big party. Let's not have anyone think that we're in any way being partisan. Uh, let's also point out, that uh, Aaron Ford is a Democrat. These are all Republicans. And I, I think there's pretty much a consensus that he is positioning himself for a run for governor, even though he seems to be denying it ish. How do you think this indictment might play into his possible campaign or Lombardo's defense of his incumbency?
2: It's a good question. I mean, I think there there have been some people uh, who sort of had criticized what Governor Sisolak, uh did during his reelection campaign, sort of suggesting that he didn't go hard enough against um, Lombardo on the Trump issue. Uh, so we could see uh, Ford go a lot harder. And this does that because there are photos of Lombardo and Michael McDonald, uh, one of the fake electors who runs the the chair of the state party. Um, there, there's him hanging out in the in the governor's office, right? There's the endorsement of Jesse Law when he was running for Clark County uh, Republican chair. Uh, so I think it definitely could play into the uh, gubernatorial election that we all expect to happen. Um, and, and that's the question is you have to ask yourself in a general election, do most republicans in nevada how big of an issue is this like we know what the base of the republican party is and who they're aligned with um and what would happen uh w- with that but in a general election does this play a lot better like how sick yeah. of the trump stuff all of this stuff the, the fake elector stuff all of that how how does that play with the general election i think that's the big question
0: I do want to push back on the suggestion that perhaps Ford could have been timing the indictment to coincide with a bid for governor. It seems that other states have also leveled their charges or indictments against their fake electors also this year. So, for example, Georgia Fulton County's uh, indictment came through, I think, in August. Looks like Michigan's case came through also um, um, earlier this year as well. So despite the fact that it has been years, it does seem in line with what other states are doing in terms of their timeline as well.
1: Well, that's interesting because, you know, certainly he stepped into it. I I can't imagine that whether it it be the defense of this criminal charge or the potential election in the future that, you know, uh, Ford's not going to be pilloried for doing this as a pure partisan attack on his enemies. Right. Uh, I mean, that is the page of the Trump book. And I'm an innocent person. I'm being persecuted. And and I have no doubt that Michael McDonald, the chair of the uh, Nevada Republican Party and, and the other uh, co-indictees uh, are, aren't going to say the same thing. What's really curious, and I'm just going to say this because as a lawyer, I feel like I'm obligated to, but I'm going to make it super short. Um, it's not the greatest, most solid legal indictment that I've ever seen. And I have seen quite a few.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. If you were going to give it like a, a letter grade, David, where like A plus C minus. like rock solid. Oh, C minus. Wow. C
1: minus. Yeah. I mean, my colleagues are already sort of debating the various merits of how they approach. I mean, look, he went back to 1911 to find a forgery law that has not been altered or changed in 110 years. Hmm. Uh, It's I think he actually picked the wrong of the of the possible forgery charges that he could have done. Uh, That's just my personal opinion. People are talking about, look, this all happened up in Carson City. There are pictures in the Nevada current of them all smiling and signing in Carson City and yet it's indicted in Clark County and there's not a lot of information on how the the two jurisdiction rule and not to get too deep into the weeds uh, plays out in that indictment it's a very bare bones indictment so there are going to be instant challenges There are going to be strong challenges so what are the implications of this whole thing we waited 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 last minute and if the indictment actually fails what are we left with?
0: I think we're left with an even more fragile election system. And that's terrifying to me.
2: Well, and certainly we are left with more fodder for criminalizing fake electors. There was a bill to criminalize fake electors that passed the legislature and that Joe Lombardo vetoed. could argue that this proves the point of like, hey, we should have done that because mm-hmm. the what we have in statute now failed but if we had passed the bill that Skip Daly had had sponsored uh, and pushed for, then there would be something or in the future. I think that, and that was yeah, in the future.
1: You can't do it after the fact.
2: But they could just prove that, hey, we need to take this seriously because people may be trying to pull off schemes like this in the future. Yeah. E- as soon as next year, guys. <laughs>
1: oh, so much fodder. So confusing.
2: Is next
0: year really an election year? Please, please. Oh, my God, it really is. Isn't it
1: almost next year now? I mean, that's where we are. Less than a month away. We're in next year.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Well, Sonia, April, thoughtful conversation as always. You know, normally we end these Friday News Roundups with a little lighter note, maybe some fun news, but it's just been a real heavy week. So I'm going to just end this way that our hearts go out to everyone who's been impacted by either of the shootings and their families as we all kind of sort through it. And here at CityCast, we're gonna provide more information, have more conversations in the coming days about all the things that impact Las Vegas and Las Vegans. I wanna wish a happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate and you know, happy holidays to everyone else who's looking for that solace. Thank you again for being here with us today.
0: Thanks, David. Thanks, April.
1: And that is all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our executive producer is Sonia Cho Swanson. Our producer is Layla Mohammed. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets. And your hosts are Sarah Lohman and me, David Figler. Special thanks this week to Dylan Thomas, Natalie Rivera, and Andreas Lindsay for all their help this week. Music is by O.G. Moose, Epidemic Sound, and All the Kimonos. We record the show on the traditional homelands of the Nuwubi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, uh, we do encourage you to tell a friend. The more people listening, the more community involved, the more robust our conversations can be. And also, subscribe to our morning newsletter. We give you up-to-date information about all the news that's happening in the Valley. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Everybody take care.